Welcome to Star Trek and the Jews, the monthly podcast that uses Star Trek to boldly explore the worlds of Jews and Judaism. So I'm Josh. Chava is off this month, so instead we have a very special guest who will be chatting with me for the whole episode. Before we get into it, uh, I want to give a bit of a content warning. So this episode is talking about genocide and the Holocaust. And last year, Chava and I talked about the Deep Space Nine episode, Duet, and how it related to concepts like guilt and intergenerational trauma and the rule of law. It's an episode that I'm really proud of, and um, frankly, it was it was kind of a serious episode. This episode is going to be a little different, because my guest and I are going to be talking about some very silly Star Trek episodes with aliens dressed up as Nazis, and that necessarily means that we're going to have a little bit of a different tone. Uh, but as always, I welcome comments by email to StarTrekandTheJews at gmail.com. Belay that order, number one. Red alert. So, let's introduce our guest. I'm a little nervous. Why are you nervous? <laughs> <laughs> Leah Maurer is a history teacher and assistant curriculum leader with the Toronto District School Board, including as a teacher of a unique, locally developed grade 11 history of genocide course. Leah is passionate about equity and social justice in the classroom. She also has a long-standing association with Facing History and Ourselves, an organization that uses lessons of history to challenge teachers and their students to stand up to bigotry and hate. Leah, welcome to Star Trek and the Jews. I'm so excited to finally be here. I've been wanting to come on your podcast for so long. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I should say, um, you and I have actually met before. Um, um, a couple times. I don't know if you remember this, but like 13 years ago or so, so you were actually in front of me in the check-in line for a, an LL flight. Yeah. And then subsequently we like started dating, fell in love, got married, had a kid, all, all that stuff. Oh yeah. All that, you know, <laughs> periphery, additional random things. <laughs> um, welcome to Star Trek and the Jews. I'm excited to be here. So I don't know if you've ever listened to our program before. A couple times. <laughs> but usually the first thing that we do is ask people their Star Trek background. So what is your Star Trek background? Or how much Star Trek have I made you watch? <laughs> I was say my Star Trek background has been carefully curated by you. <laughs> um, you we A few years ago, we made a deal that um, I would watch Deep Space Nine and um, you would watch Gilmore Girls. And I believe that I watched all of Deep Space Nine, and then you watched two episodes of Gilmore Girls, and we're like, and no. And then several years later, I brought it up in front of oh. a group of friends, and then you were shamed into watching all of Gilmore Girls. I have a very different recollection of that. <laughs> no, that's not what happened at all. <laughs> that's exactly what happened. This is typical Josh telling everyone that my story of the story is not right. I'm going to tell you my recollection of the story. Okay. First of all, it was not Deep Space Nine. Oh, it was Battlestar. You're it was right. Battlestar oh, Galactica. Okay. Yeah. And then did we oh. Do the, As switch the, house, you... the House of Cards already starts to collapse. The deal was that I would watch the first two episodes of Gilmore Girls and see if I liked it. And you would watch the first two episodes of Battlestar Galactica, which are amazing, and see if you liked it. That is not the case. And so we watched all of Battlestar and I didn't like Gilmore Girls. <laughs> Subsequently, I wanted you to watch Deep Space Nine, so I re-offered Gilmore Girls. And we did, in fact, watch all of it. Well, all of it, not including the recent miniseries one. I 10 years later or whatever, which is fine that you missed. Anyway, this isn't a Gilmore Girls podcast. <laughs> Not yet, at least. Oh, oh, okay. Challenge accepted. So so what Star Trek have you seen? We know Deep Space okay, Nine. Okay, so we watched Deep Space Nine, and even that, like, you 
you took out a lot of the stinkers, particularly in the first couple seasons. Yeah, you've you've watched probably uh, I don't know seventy five percent of it. Yeah, um, and then like we've seen the so we've been watching Discovery together and Picard and Lower Decks. I think I'm a few episodes behind in Lower Decks, so yeah. we should get on that. Yeah, um, but that I think is my favorite. The last series. few have like a shocking amount of nudity. Really? Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> That's actually my favorite series. I like that one the most. We've seen, like, you've, like, forced me to watch some TOS. Um, and, Such as for this one. But I actually I kind of liked this episode. But, like, you know, some of the TOS is, like, really, I can see the cardboard, which I'm sure everyone is aware of. I really like the triples, though, so that's fun. And TNG, we watched some TNG. Maybe watch a few Voyager. Made you. No, okay, the Voyager is good. And um, unfortunately, I've watched a couple episodes of Enterprise, so I guess we'll talk about my my thoughts on Enterprise as a whole soon. You you weren't so happy when I started singing the theme song, were you? Oh my god, that's that's one of my answers to one of the questions. So don't no spoilers. <laughs> okay, tell me about your work and and why you're my guest today. Okay, so when I was an undergrad student, I did a degree in history, and I really focused on. Like, I guess kind of my niche was the Holocaust and learning about Jew- like modern Jewish history. And then I always wanted to be a teacher. So I went into teacher's college and I was like kind of finding a way to marry my like real weird interest in the Holocaust and my teaching because there wasn't really like a Holocaust course per se. And then I met Facing History. They're a great organization and I've done a lot of work with them. And then I got to teach history and um, there's a genocide course that they helped to develop with the TDSB. And now it's offered in lots of schools throughout Ontario. And I, I brought the the genocide course to my school this year and I'm teaching it there. And yeah, I just, I love teaching and learning about history and um, you often make jokes that I also like to read a lot. You often make jokes that the only books I like are when more than 10,000 people die, <laughs> which is not true. <laughs> I like lots of softer books too, but um, yeah. It's not just me. Your whole book club is like, why is Leah choosing another ethnic cleansing novel? Can Leah please pick a book that doesn't result in uh, a breach of the Geneva Conventions? The book I'm currently reading doesn't. It's about a teenager who shoplifts. Um, <laughs> okay, so facing history and ourselves, on a scale of uh, 1 to 10, how much is what you do exactly like the terrible teacher from Never Have oh I Ever? Oh my god, not even a little bit. He's like the worst, except I will say that like it's really funny to be watching that show. Because I, I think we should explain Never Have I Ever is a Netflix show produced by Mindy Kaling. It's wonderful. And she must have been like a... She's a former Facing History student, yes. Obviously did not have a good time with it. Yes. There's like this teacher who's very like, he wears a pussy hat all the time. And he's all like, let's just love each other and like talk about our feelings. That is not what we do in Facing History. It's like, you know, like you, you do need to process things because we are, you know, we're talking about like genocide. And like, it's hard to, you know, come to school every day and learn about how hundreds of thousands of people died. So there is some processing that you need to do. He's a caricature. So we watched a couple of episodes. I think we'll probably spend most of our time talking about the original series Patterns of Force because it was actually like substantive and had something to say and yes. hits and misses, but interesting. And we watched the Enterprise episode uh, Stormfront Part 1 and 2. Why don't I give a summary of uh, Patterns of Force? Sure. The Enterprise is looking for John Gill, a Federation cultural observer and Kirk's former history teacher. Kirk and Spock beam down to the planet Ecos, and they find that it is a stunning replica of the Paramount backlot, I mean, of (laughs) Nazi Germany, and that John Gill has installed himself as the Fuhrer. 
They see Nazis kill Zeons in the street, and the planet is in the early days of the Final Decision, where Zeons on Ecos will be rounded up and killed, followed soon by the destruction of the nearby planet Zeon. The Zeons are described as swine who've defiled the planet Ecos. After some failed attempts to dress up as Nazis, Kirk and Spock are arrested and found to be aliens. They befriend a Zeon named Isaac and escape together, joining the underground and meeting Daris, a high-ranking Nazi official who is secretly working for the Resistance. Together with Daris and Isaac, they dress up as a film crew and infiltrate Nazi headquarters. They find Federation cultural observer slash history teacher John Gill drugged. He says he brought Nazism to the Ecosians because its efficiency was necessary for the cohesion of the planet. But he's now being used as the puppet for some other Nazi named Melikon. Together they stop Melikon and they put Darius in power who promises to end fascism on the planet. And then they all have a good laugh on the bridge. It always ends with a good laugh. <laughs> yeah. So no beating around the bush on this one. The metaphor is just below the surface, like... The Nazis it's not even are, below the surface, it is the surface. Right. The Nazis are just like plain Nazis, yeah. and, and the Zeons, like Zeon for Zion, and they're named like Isaac and Abram, and they talk about Final Decision, which Kirk actually calls Final Solution one time. This is a Holocaust episode, and at a point in time, like not very far removed from the Holocaust, I was thinking like 23 years after mm-hmm. the Holocaust ends, it would be like having an episode come out today about something that happened. Like in, 9-11? Yeah, like yeah. almost, right. And like the history of American film and TV depictions of the Holocaust is pretty young. Like there was the Anne Frank movie in, um, in I think, 59. So, you know, we're in the first decade of Americans putting Holocaust in film and television. What do you think of this episode? So I thought it was really gutsy, honestly, of the show to portray the Nazis so blatantly and in color, which I thought was interesting. Like, it's one thing to look at the footage of the Nazis from the the 30s and the 40s, and it's black and white and whatever. But like, seeing the swastika and the uniforms in color is Mm -hmm. kind of jarring. And I can imagine for an audience at that time, like you said, it was like early on in the film depictions of the Hollywood depictions of the Holocaust. And there was a period really like for the first 20 years or so after liberation where survivors were hesitant to talk about the Holocaust and their experiences in the camps because they didn't want to burden people who didn't go through it. And they didn't know how to explain something that nobody could like fathom and they didn't want to be like disbelieved. And then people who knew that the Holocaust happened didn't want to ask survivors about their experiences because they didn't know the questions to ask. They didn't know what had happened. Like they Mm -hmm. knew vaguely, but we know so much more now about. Even as it was happening, people knew something terrible was happening to the Jews. And people knew that their family members had died. For sure. But like they didn't know the extent of it and like the level of industry and planning and you know that hadn't come out and really the 1961 Eichmann trial is like the first time that that the box kind of opened on this discussion and this was filmed what like 68 like in the late yeah yeah, so 68 and that 61 so I think having this depiction on such a popular show so early like I applaud them for going there Mm -hmm. yeah and and Eichmann significant too because like what's what's the name of Hannah Arendt's book Oh, gosh. Um, Eichmann in Jerusalem in 1963 is what she wrote. Right. Which is like the first, it's not the first book about the Holocaust, but I think it was like the first 
well-read book that goes deeper into the motivations and systems and uh, what's behind these people. And, and I think if we're to like sum up a very complicated political philosophy in like a Hillel on one foot, she puts it right there in the, in the title, banality of evil, mm-hmm. that these were boring middle managers pushing pencils yeah. their way to genocide. Yeah, it was it was very bureaucratic. It was very organized and very industrial and, you know. No villains who twirled their mustache. Except for one. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, have you ever seen the show Hogan's Heroes? It's from, no. from the 60s. So Hogan's Heroes is a comedy. It's set in a Nazi POW camp. And so, like, the, the main characters are allied prisoners of war and various idiotic Nazis mm-hmm. and and they are in color and in full regalia um but it is a very silly show mm-hmm. there are silly things about this episode but it also like there's a scene in this where where someone describes um another a member of the resistance describes to Isaac his fiance being like shot in the street and mm-hmm. it takes her 5 mm-hmm. hours to die and and i think also like there's a difference here between that because that's like that's set in a Nazi POW camp this is Star Trek, like you don't turn on Star Trek thinking today I'm going to see something about the Nazis. Like it just, you know, it's the episode of the week and it's just kind of there and they go there, you know? Mm-hmm. Why don't we talk about some things we didn't like first and uh, then we'll come in with some some more positives. So <laughs> one of the tropes they keep going back to is like John Gill saying we needed fascism because this planet needed like cohesion and efficiency. You're the history teacher. Tell me. I just, I thought that that was interesting because like they, they talk about him as a history teacher and they respect him as a history teacher. And like, I don't know, there are other ways to get people (laughs) like on your side besides like, you know, terrorizing them. And I was a little bit like, yeah, I don't buy it. Like you should, you, like, you know, how bad this was. And like you, you know, especially for someone who's the professor of earth history at Starfleet, like you, you should probably steer as far away from Nazism (laughs) as you possibly can. Yeah. And, and this is like, this is a backlot episode. This is, Hey, we have some Chicago gangster costumes. (laughs) We have some gladiator costumes. (laughs) Let's use them. (laughs) Let's let's see what we can do. Um, And actually, pretty soon after Paramount had acquired Desilu, like they they bought Lucille Ball's production company. uh, And so suddenly there's all these film sets. (laughs) Yeah, I also think like at that period... I, it's still sort of in the culture, this idea of like the the Nazis made the trains run on time. And uh-huh. I think that that was like 30s Nazi propaganda to convince yeah. local Germans that they were good at running things and then, right. and then exported to the rest of the world. And I don't really think there's a basis, in fact, to that. I also didn't love that John Gill, when he was the, the front man of like the Nazi party that he had to be drugged. Like, I think mm-hmm. that, I think that takes away his onus in his decision making. And it's like, Oh, he was on drugs. It's fine. Like, no, he knew what he was doing. Yeah. Hitler knew what he was doing. So did all like the Nazis who were, would have been at such a party as he was throwing. Like, right. and, and Hitler, like famously an, an amphetamine user. Also, why did they need to transport a doctor from the ship down to the Nazi party to tell them that he was drugged. Like he clearly is 
not of a sound mind. Why, why, why do they need to go there? I, I did love the, the drug John Gill though, because this is again to like an interesting comment they have about fascism. He's on the TV saying these nonsense platitudes. They don't mean anything, but they're like these big, bold statements about power and the nation and blood and, and Kirk and Spock are like, this, this doesn't mean anything. And all the Nazis are unironically clapping. And if, if you watch like a, like a Mussolini speech or a Hitler speech, like they don't, the content of them is not cohesive. No, they don't really say anything of substance at all. Like Mussolini even more so had no underlying ideology beyond power. Like, like famously Mussolini was, was an anti-cleric for his whole life because it was popular in the right circles he needed to be in. But then as soon as he was in national politics, he was like strongly like pro-clerical, pro-church. Any other tropes he didn't like? I think that was the main one. Like being so drugged takes away John Gill's active role and Hitler's active role in the decision-making process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And more broadly, the like, oh, it's one one man or one man Uh propped up by one other man was the whole thing. There's like a real effort to like not all occasions. Right. And and Darius is there for that too. Um, which is something that I think like the Allies were very keen to do in Germany after the war because you have like all these Cold War implications and like that's something Chava and I talked about in, in our last episode on the Holocaust that like you, you really see this. This effort to, to be like, okay, hang a few bad apples and the rest go free. Uh-huh. And it, not pinning it on one person, but like trying to say like, oh, this was just, you know, a bad egg and, and yeah. every, there's no broader guilt. A couple of other things I didn't like. Isaac says the, the Zeons will fail to repel Ecos because they don't have a mindset to be defensive will go like sheep to the slaughter, yeah. which I think you know, there was a trope of, of Jews, you know, going like lambs to the slaughter. And then there's also like a reactionary trope to that, that we see like a lot in, in like early Israeli responses to the Holocaust, like the first iteration of Yad Vashem, where it was like centering resistance. Both of those narratives that like we went along quietly and uh, we fought every chance we could missed the reality yeah. of the futility of resisting the Nazi war machine. For sure. And like, you know, there's so many acts of resistance that we don't, like when we think of resistance, I automatically, you know, kind of go to, you know, the Warsaw Ghetto uprising and like, you know, like physical, actual resistance. But there's so many other aspects of resistance in the Holocaust. Just, you know, having bar mitzvahs in the camps, like that is an act of resistance. Like, you know, I think... And this is something Chava really raised in in the last discussion we had, that, like, it's one thing to be proud of people for resisting in the Warsaw ghetto uprising, mm-hmm. but that was not an effective means of resistance. Like, no. it didn't change the outcome of the war. Of all of those Jews who were in Europe and did not die in the Holocaust, there were basically only two effective modes of survival – People who bided for time mm-hmm. and people who escaped. And that could mean, you know, escaped a particular situation you were in or escaped your country before it was invaded. Right. The, the number of people who they survived because they took part in um, violent resistance is, is close to zero. And I don't think that, I mean, 
who knows because who knows, but I don't necessarily think that people who participated in something like the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising were saying like, I'm going to do this so that I can survive. It was more like, I'm going to do this because this is awful and like, screw the Nazis. They're, they're all young men with no families. Right. And, and that right. tells you that like, yeah. these, this was last ditch go down uh-huh. fighting, which I'm not saying was wrong, right. but there was no model of violent resistance that could have changed the outcome. Right. Like you, like, a handful of Jews who smuggled in weapons to the Warsaw Ghetto are not going to be victorious against the Nazi army. No. Another weird thing, it, there there were like lots of pacing issues in this episode. Um, the, the like power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely quote. I didn't really think that had anything to do with the content of the episode. I, no. I was couldn't understand why it was there. There was corruption was not uh, an issue in the episode. No, it was just kind of like, oh, this is a thing we should mention, okay? What are some things that you liked or found interesting in the episode? Um, let's see. We we talked a bit about, you know, the depiction being vivid. I liked how the episode put some of the Nazis' tricks on full display, but also made a mockery of them. For example... Like, the Nazis famously had this, like, obsession and, and deep understanding of propaganda. They're able to infiltrate Nazi headquarters by posing as a propaganda film to glorify the party. The Nazis also were big into phrenology, this, like, yeah. 19th century Victorian pseudoscience that the Nazis really latched onto of, like, the bumps of people's heads speaking to their personality or the, like, strengths or weaknesses of their racial purity or whatever, which is just... Total bunk, Ludicrous. but the, the Nazis were really into it, and, and they go off on like, oh, Spock, you can see his sinister line. He must be an extremely emotional creature. <laughs> Have um, you met a Vulcan? <laughs> more an interesting note, like, you know about, like, Slash, like Kirk's, Kirk Slash Spock? Yeah. This, this like, genre yeah, of, yeah, yeah. of, like, gay fan fiction about Kirk the and two Spock. Of them, right. Yeah, and this is one where, like, you can... Like, this is, like, really drenched in homoeroticism in this episode. Quite a bit. The outfits beam of down, Kirk and Spock yeah. beam down, and, like, they're shirtless together for this extended scene, and, like, lifting each other up, and Kirk's sort of at groin level, while a topless Spock, Spock is, is, is hoisted, and they're, like, grunting. Should find enough power here to achieve the necessary stimulus. We're able to achieve the necessary excitation even using crude... Oh, Mr. Spock, could appreciate it if you'd hurry. Yes, of course, Captain. And then, like, the whole fifth act takes place with the two of them literally in the closet together. Um, <laughs> Metaphor much? Right. Um, and I never know with these, like, how how much is intended, how much is, like, perceptions of it have changed. But this one seems like this is just, like drenched in how could it not have been how could it not is if if this if this episode was on nbc today they would have had to have like both of them both of them have to sleep with some alien girl to like show that they're not Not gay gay, because as much as tv has come along they still don't want to make their lead characters in this kind of situation gay and the action heroes would have to like demonstrate their heterosexuality yeah yeah it's also not lost on me that, like, 
two Jewish guys in 1968 have to dress up like Nazis. Nazis. Leonard Nimoy actually refused to take I don't think he had any objection to the role, but he did refuse to to take a publicity photo in an SS outfit, which is, you know, reasonable. That's, that's fair. I I would also feel uncomfortable with my image like that. <laughs> any last thoughts on this on this episode before we move on? Um so I picked up a few like depictions of what some of the the different roles are. Like I teach um you know the different roles that people play in a genocide and when we first see the Nazis attacking the Zeons Kirk and Spock are like your quintessential bystanders. Like they see something coming and they literally like duck behind a wall and peek around and watch this beating happen. And it made me think about the prime directive and how, you know, you're not allowed to interfere with these societies. But if there was an opportunity. Although they do overthrow the government <laughs> in the end. Fair. But like if there was an opportunity for like, you know, Kirk and Spock from the future to come into like actual 1943 and like stop the genocide from happening, I would be like, please, please do whatever you can with your phasers to take this out. I, I just, I wonder about the prime directive making Starfleet be like intergalactic bystanders in a lot of situations. We're like, well, if you could just do this, it would be so helpful. Oh, but we can't interfere. Mm-hmm. So I also thought it was interesting that the victims kind of look like regular humans. Yeah. Like there's no way for us as viewers who aren't immersed in the society to know like you're a Zeon and you're not a Zeon. Mm. I thought that, that was really interesting because so much was done in Nazi Germany to depict Jews and to call out Jews and like make them the other. And there was no real othering done in this situation. Like whenever we saw them getting beaten up, it was like, oh, you're a Zeon, beat you up. And there's nobody else in the street. It's right. like just this Zeon happening to walk down the street on their own in broad daylight. It's a thing that exposes the fantasies of the Nazis that they thought of the Jews as this like racial other. And yet you don't make a person wear a yellow star to identify them if right. if you can spot the differences. Right. Yeah. I also thought it was interesting that like the star was missing from this. There was no physical marking in this society. And I also, something that stuck out for me right at the beginning of the episode was Spock and and Kirk are talking on the bridge about John Gill. And Spock says of Gill, what impressed me most was his treatment of earth history as causes and motivations rather than dates and events, Mm -hmm. which is like, I, probably, I know, that's not how I learned Leah history. Leah teaching 101. Right. And that's not how I learned history, which is why I love history so much. But it's definitely how, like, my parents learned history. And that is so far removed from how history is taught now. And I just, I was like, that's, like, yeah, Spock, you're right. That's my teaching philosophy. Like People still, when when you tell them that you don't teach your grade 10 history course chronologically, they're like, what? How do you do it? Right. Like... Like, and how do you do it? Right. So instead of teaching it chronologically, I teach it thematically. So like we start with the wars because you have to, um, to get, you know, international relations in the 20th century down, but then we break it up into themes. So we talk about, you know, identity and we, you know, instead of, and we talk about, we do a whole unit on indigenous peoples because that's important. Um, not only learning about residential schools, but learning about treatment of them and their legacy and indigenous peoples as like a thriving group that exists in Canada and not some ancient past mm-hmm. um, and not just victims of genocide, just like how Jews, you know, we don't want people to just think of us as victims of genocide. We're much more than that. I also teach that, especially in my genocide course, that genocide doesn't just happen. 
it's gradual and it's slow. You don't just wake up one day and there's concentration camps. And I felt a mm-hmm. little bit like in this, in this episode, like you just kind of wake up and they're there. It's like, no, it took years and years of, of propaganda and of brainwashing and of stigmatization and yeah. building on like centuries of anti-Semitism in Europe. For sure. Like, you you know, John Gills just kind of dropped down and was like, oh, let's do this thing. And the whole world was like, okay, that's not really how genocide happens. And that's not, I, I teach kids like, you know, the purpose of learning this stuff is to see when it's happening in your world and, you know, so that you can stop it from happening. Should we talk about Stormfront? Sure. Which I don't recommend you Google the title of this episode. <laughs> So I'll give a very short summary. Um, this is a two-parter. It opens the fourth season. After beating the Zindi, Archer finds himself in Nazi-occupied New York City in an alternate version of 1944, where the Germans have invaded America. Uh, events have been altered by a group of aliens fighting the Temporal Wars, and they've allied themselves with the Nazis to get the equipment they need to win some other war in the future. And Archer teams up with Daniels and Silic and the Brooklyn Resistance to stop them, and they save the timeline. This is a very silly episode. It's a very silly episode. What do you think of Enterprise? I don't think you've seen Enterprise before. No. um, It's very silly, and I'm kind of glad that you didn't introduce me to Star Trek with them, because I would have been like, what do you watch and why do I care? (laughs) Um, So thank you for not putting Enterprise on the list of things that I needed to watch. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, like... Like I think the theme song just says it all. Like, like why? Why do we need like an early two thousands, like late nineties, like uh, like oh, that's not Star Trek. This episode, there's a couple of things that bugged me in it. Um, just a couple. <laughs> um, the first one is like, where are all the Jews? Yeah, they're in Brooklyn. There's 1.8 million Jews living in New York City at the time, 20% of the population. Um, they meet this resistance that is like a kind of an American wish fulfillment of integration. And it's the resistance is like Italian mobsters and uh, black people in Brooklyn have teamed up together to fight the Nazis, which I guess is like fun, but... Where are all the Jews? Where are all the Jews? They literally talk about like Flatbush being down the road. There's, there's no, there's a, I guess there's a reference to, well, they talk about the aliens offer the Nazis a genetic virus that can target their enemies. Um, And in the film reel, when they kick off the second episode, they talk about how, oh, we've teamed up with America to fight together, vowing to root out the parasitic elements that have crippled our economy since 1929 and liberate the masses from the grip of financial profiteers. Did you see whose image they used when they said that? No. I don't think it was intentional. I think they just wanted old-timey stuff. Mackenzie King. Huh. Yeah. That's really funny. Yeah. Also funny because he was a huge fan of Hitler. Just well, saying. He, he did lead Canada through World War II, but also he, he did was a huge fan this of is Hitler. The, the Canadian Prime Minister through, through World, World War, War II. II. And he took war advice from his dead mother and dog during seances. So, question mark. And he famously instituted the none is too many policy to keep Jewish refugees out of Canada during the war. Although he didn't say it. No, he did not. It was um, Blair. There's like parts of this episode that were like sort of fun. Like it's fun to see like Shuttle Pod One have to get in a phaser fight with World War Two era 
fighters and stuff like that. And to see Enterprise like swoop down and shoot that building and giant explosions in New York. But I didn't really think this episode had much interesting to say about. No, no. I think there were some interesting things. Like I thought just looking at the images of like the swastikas on the White House, like as jarring and as like awful that and gut wrenching that is, it's just like, oh, like, like if shit had gone wrong, like, you know, like, thank God it didn't. But like, also in that newsreel footage, some of the footage that they used was archival footage of the so called pro American rally, which was this massive 1939 rally uh, for the Nazis um, was organized by the German American Bund called the pro American rally where speakers, you know, yelled to make America great again and America first. Hmm, where have we heard that recently? Yeah, seriously. You know, American views on Nazism changed radically over the next few years, including, you know, especially galvanized after Pearl Harbor. But this was a rally attended by more than 20,000 people in New York City in support of the Nazis uh, as World War II is about to break out. Yeah, it's definitely like, it's definitely hard to think about like how many people in North America were not were and continue to be Nazi sympathizers. The centerpiece of that rally is like a 60 foot painting of George Washington. It was held right before George Washington's birthday and like the the touchstone that all the speakers keep going back to in that event is if george washington was alive today uh he would uh he would be a nazi that's the argument that they try to make (laughs) they also do a thing here that like the marvel movies have done too which is the nazis are secretly being driven by someone who's even worse than the Nazis, and they're going to get it. And maybe these Nazis aren't so bad compared to the double secret Nazis, which is like Hydra in the Captain America movies. Although here the aliens, like they don't even care about, like it's just opportunistic. They ju- they're just like, who can get me the duranium that I need or whatever. Right. Um, which I, I think like robbed the story of of some of its... There's a lot of interesting things you could have said with this story. This could have been like a man in high castle kind of right. story. And, and it's just, just, just like Archer gets to punch some people and they, he wears a funny hat and. Yeah. I, I'm, yeah, I was not a fan. So Josh, are there any other perhaps better <laughs> depictions of Nazis in Star Trek? I, I don't think better. I mean, there's only one other episode, or it's a two-parter also, that, that like, has, like, like actual, like, red, ba- red armband with a swastika Nazis, and that is a two-parter from Voyager called The Killing Game. The, the basic premise is, like, these hunter aliens, the Herosian, capture Voyager, and they force the crew to play out all these simulations for the pleasure of hunting and killing them. And the, the like, main one that the bridge crew are in is, like, a scenario replicating the, the bridge crew are members of the French resistance and the Herosian are like the local Nazi contingent trying to hunt them down. It actually is the, I think it is the only one to, to specifically name check Jews and like reference Jews explicitly as a people. There's like one in TNG that is a comedian sped up to 64 times and you have to slow down the episode <laughs> to hear the word choose so that for the watcher who doesn't slow down their Netflix to 64 <laughs> times to hear every line of dialogue, this is the only explicit mention uh, of Jews. It's funny because like if 
it's an episode that really feels like a backlot one, but probably was very expensive to shoot. And there's like lots of location shoots and there's a whole Klingon subplot and it's a good episode. So that's it for like actual, actual Nazis. A lot of, you know, models of fascism. We've talked about the Cardassians on the right. show before who, who have, you know, sometimes they're Nazis and sometimes they're different kinds of oppressors and they play with that in, in an episode like Duet. They were very explicitly Nazis. The Mirror Universe is one too. I mean, they do, uh, the Empire does like a Nazi like salute and they're very right. fascistic, um, have that, you know, kind of image obsession that the Nazis had that focus on like the fascistic aesthetic. Mm-hmm. I felt, I know we, you and I have talked about this and I think you share the view that like Discovery sort of has the stormtrooper problem when it comes yeah. to the Mirror Universe of like, the Mirror Universe are Nazis, just like in Star Wars. I don't know if you know about Star Wars. It's this other science fiction franchise. Mm, I've heard of it before. Yeah, yeah. Vaguely familiar. Um, the Stormtroopers in Star Wars are Nazis. There's right. a There's a great video by a YouTuber named uh, Lindsay Alice on this dilemma of like, they clearly use fascist aesthetics and to some extent ideology, but also like Disney wants to make action figures and have people dress up in costume and like right. make them into like a big cultural meme. So How they do have, I monetize the Nazis? <laughs> they have to be like to a certain degree beloved, right? right? That is a really difficult needle to thread. Yeah. And I, I see Discovery really bumping on that a lot. I felt like they attempted the redemption of Giorgio in season three of Discovery just didn't. That doesn't work. No. She's a totalitarian. She's a cannibal. Right. (laughs) And in some ways it's worse in Discovery because they actually do. And this is true in all the Mirror episodes and like going back to Mirror Mirror where they really are villains who twirl their mustaches. Right. This is not. Literally. This is not the banality of evil. This is the (laughs) raging, screaming, (laughs) tormenting, weirdly into leather and BDSM (laughs) of evil. Um, So, uh. Yeah, it's been really nice to have you here. It's been really fun to finally be on your podcast. Th- thanks so much for coming into the studio today. Oh, you're welcome. It was a slap video. Yeah, yeah. It was it was a lot, but I made it happen. I guess I'll I'll see you in a minute when we when we stop recording. Yeah, um I guess I guess let's have dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm hungry. Uh, all right, that's enough. That's all for Star Trek and the Jews today. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to my wonderful guest, Leah Maurer. So nice to have you here. Our opening fanfare was arranged by Dr. Adam Snyderman. We'll be back next month, and your Hebrew school homework is the Season 5 Next Gen episode, The Inner Light, one of my favorites. Thanks for listening. It's a huppa. A what? A huppa. You stand under it, you and Max. It's for your wedding. Did you make that? Yeah, I had some time, so give me a hand, huh? Look, it's beautiful.